Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I am the Charles de Gaulle of the supermarket world. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and Anna, just so you know, old trees want to hurt you, and I think they'd kill you if they could. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of... Polyheuristic decision-making. And the brain multiverse. Today, we'll be talking about Stephen King's 1980 novella, The Mist, although some of you might have encountered it in The Skeleton Crew, which was his first collection of short stories, although The Mist is not a short story. It's a novella. It's a real novella. It's a real novella. It is available at fine bookstores everywhere. It's also available on its own right now, but I think that's kind of a ripoff, Dan. Like, I mean, it's really good. It's really good, but... I, you should get I don't it as normally, part of the skeleton crew, unless yes. you go ahead. Uh, I don't mean to encourage piracy, but I'm pretty sure if you Google Stephen King's The Mist full text, you're going to find a way to read it without necessarily having to pay for it. And also, I'm pretty sure Stephen King is going to be fine. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't think, you know what, Stephen King, okay. My wife, I, 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 my wife took my daughter, you know, to visit his like estate in Maine. Like, yeah. That's a thing to do when we go to Maine, yes. so. You know, he's he's doing well. He's doing point. fine. Yeah. yeah. In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about Rebecca Roanhorse's Black Sun and then our musical sci-fi episode. This is right. This is actually a suggestion, uh, I believe, from a patron who pointed out that we could probably do we're going to do Buffy the Vampire Slayer once more with feeling. And then we will do Strange New World Subspace Rhapsody. We will not sing. That is no. that is my promise to you, nope. dear listeners. Nope, nope, nope. This will be our sci-fi. And you will thank us for that. <laughs> that's right, because maybe we'll sing just enough so you understand why we're not exactly. singing. Exactly. That's that's the only amount of singing we will do. Absolutely, we're agreed on that. We have lots of ideas, but are always taking suggestions. The best way to do that is to become a patron and join our Discord. But we'll talk more about that later. Mm-hmm. Yes. Dan, how yes. are you? I'm good, Anna, and I'm actually kind of feeling nostalgic because right now I am speaking to you not from my home, but rather from Los Angeles, California, <gasps> which is where the American Political Science Association annual meeting is being held. And Anna, this holds a special place in my heart because we met at the American Political Science Association annual meeting. In... The first time we met in Chicago in 2004. That is correct. Wow. You, I invited you to participate in my blog panel, which, by the way, that panel remains the most well-attended thing I have ever done at Apple. I'm sure this was normal for you, but for me, having 300 people in the audience, not a normal thing for a political science, you know, shindig. And like, that was a rockin', you know, panel. It was not about ethics and blogging, though. It was not. And you know what? I still remember a line you said at that presentation. What was it? You you said blogging makes bad writing look pretty. (laughs) And that stuck with me. That really did stick with me. Yep, it's true. It's all about the aesthetics. So, Dan, we are talking about The Mist. Yes, we are. But first, I just did want to ask, how are you doing? It seems unfair that only I get the burden. Oh, yes. Well, you know, I had a little mental health episode. We're going to call it an episode. Let's call it an episode. A mental health thing I had to attend to this month. And Mm -hmm. I am still kind of babying myself a little bit, which probably is something for me to think about just more generally general. Yeah. (laughs) As someone who has encouraged Anna to baby herself on a slightly more regular basis, I'm down with this. I just want to say I'm down with the babying. Perhaps it shouldn't be called even babying myself. Perhaps it should be just called, you know, living. (laughs) 
<laughs> living without living such, with grace, <laughs> living, with grace. living without the quite the high expectations that I have of myself. Dan, as you know, I shared with you, I really let the house go. <laughs> yeah, it looks just looking at it. I'm just yeah. Wow. That's Dan. There are dishes in the sink. Oh, my God. And, oh, and yes. Yeah. My bed was sometimes unmade. <gasps> yeah, I know that for a lot of people, <laughs> it's not going to be slacking off. But for me, it's real victory. So thank you. Thank you for supporting me on this journey. Dan. Excellent. All right. So we should talk about why we're doing this. And Anna, I do have to kind of ask you because I'm a little worried that I am horning in on one of your other podcasts. And I know how Stephen King plots go, and I'm worried what will happen to me if we do this. <laughs> you are correct that I am a part of a Stephen King podcast, a, a mm-hmm. Stephen King dedicated podcast, right. yeah. where I love it. I don't think it's for everyone. I don't. Maybe they they would not like it that I say that. But I mean, there are people who read Stephen King who number in the hundreds of millions, and then there are people who have like three hour conversations about a Stephen King book. And that's a slightly smaller number, but I am one of them. And in fact, I did the show this week. I did the podcast this this week. We talked about Under the Dome, the TV adaptation of King's Under the Dome novel. Oh, yeah. With like Natalie Martinez, I think. was And Dean Norris. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. When he was also doing Breaking Bad, which makes it all the more crazy. Oh, that's bizarre. All the more crazy how terrible it is. <laughs> it's almost a time capsule of like early teens TV, mm-hmm. like when we had peak TV sort of happening, but also people spent a ton of money on these like network events, so-called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this was yeah. advertised during the Super Bowl and everything. Yeah, it, I enjoyed it. I watched like 30 episodes of it. They made 30 episodes they made 39 of it? Wow. episodes of it. Oh my God, wow. Wow. And it turns out, actually, the King podcast, I don't do it all the time. I'm just like a rotating guest. Yeah, yeah. They were like, oh, my God, you watch that much? And I was like, aren't we supposed to? And they're like, oh, no, <laughs> we're just going to talk about it. I'm like, oh, well, okay. Well, that seems a little lax, I'm going to say. You know, we generally consume the, the whatever it is we're talking about. I don't know what the rules are over there, but yeah. it is a good episode okay. if you're into that kind of thing. The reason mm. we're talking about The Mist, though, mm. is that it is a belated entry into Hot Sci-Fi Summer. This is true. Technically, it opens with literally Hot hot summer, hot, hot, hot Sci-Fi Summer. Yeah, it is a hot it is a hot Sci-Fi Summer in the story. Maybe. Yes. It takes place at the end of a heat wave. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought maybe, maybe reading it would bust the heat dome. Look, I'm bringing everything together. All the threads. Nice. All the threads nice. coming together. <laughs> nice. Well, also... Like there's a way in which- That I'm living in. I'm in a heat dome right now. I know. But there's like a perfect, this is actually a way in which it's perfectly transitioned, like in the story, from Hot Sci-Fi Summer to potentially the cooler narratives that we're going to be exploring in the fall. Yes, that's true. All right. So Dan, I have loved this for a long time. It doesn't have the twist ending that the movie does. I think people should know that. However- Yes. (laughs) Should people stop this podcast right now? And pick it up and read it if they have not already. I am going to say yes, Anna, for for two reasons. The first is there are plot developments, and I think you don't want to know about them as you are reading it. And second and equally important, this is not – it's a novella. This is 100 pages, basically, You know, maybe a little longer. It is not going to take you that long to read it. And also, for those of you who have only watched the movie, definitely read it because it's different. 
mostly in a superior way. I, apparently, the the movie is is reasonably well reviewed, and we'll talk about that in a second. But like, and as you point out, the ending of the the novella is very different yeah. from the ending of the uh, the film. Yes. And what do you think? You would agree with this? I think people should read it. It's it's. Yeah. We'll talk at length about this. It's one of my favorite king pieces and it's super short and it's really good and it does Mm -hmm. have developments that you're going to want to be surprised by yeah exactly yes if you have not read it stop the pod right now and then go listen to a meg episode because you (laughs) definitely don't have to have seen those movies those episodes very true absolutely catch up on the meg episodes yeah you know take an hour or two to read the short story novella and then come back (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm now having this envisioning of what if they had made the Miss starring Jason Statham. <laughs> it's and, got tentacles, Anna. Yeah. Oh, you you love that Statham voice. I, I do. It's I, awful. I, we need to do more. I guess more Statham stuff. So we clearly we need have more to do Statham, the Punisher. Yeah. I, I oh. oh wait, is that Thomas no, no. Jane? That's Thomas Jane. That's Thomas Jane. Thomas Jane's in the Punisher. Yeah. 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 Thomas Jane, who's also in. The mist. The mist. Yeah, he's the protagonist of the mist. I yeah. feel like I feel like Jason Statham has a Punisher connection. He's no, I don't in think so. something that's maybe one of the directors of the Punisher because it's a maybe. how did this get made? Ah, okay. Connection. Possible. I'm thinking about, but we can just move on. Just we'll yeah. think of other ways to get. Let's Statham get to you know our yeah. Let's get time. to the previous experience with this. Anna, I think it's safe to say this novella is a holds a place near and dear to your heart. Yes. Um, so I'm a huge king head in general. I have probably read this particular story, I mean, at least three or four times, perhaps more. And I know the number is really high up there because this is one of the first king stories I ever read. Mm-hmm. How old were you? I was 13. Oh, wow. My first king book was Christine, mm-hmm. which I loved. And Mm -hmm. then this is from Skeleton Key, and that is the thing that came out in 1985. Yeah, yeah. The 80s when it was first published. 85 is when it came out in Skeleton Mm -hmm. Key, right? Or Skeleton Crew, sorry. Mm -hmm. So I, I fell in love. (laughs) It started a a long, or at least throughout high school career of me arguing with English teachers about whether or not Stephen King was a literary author. Oh, I can imagine those English teachers being snooty about it. They were, they were. This is, of course, long before he appeared in The New Yorker, which I I love for him. I just do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that yeah. probably scratched an itch for him. And also it made me want to send it to like my old English teachers to be like, <laughs> see? Mm-hmm. I only have a vague memory of seeing the movie for the first time. I know that I saw it, but as mm-hmm. regular listeners know, there's a period of the late aughts and early teens, teens. where I don't have a super good memory mm-hmm. of all the things that I did. So <laughs> that I think falls into that category. And in my case, this was the first time I read the novella, but I've done the work here on it because in a funny story, when we agreed we were going to do the mist, I think you know, retrospect, this is probably my memory. Cause I think you probably said at one point we were talking about actually doing the novella. My experience with this was a little different on it in that I had never read the novella and but I can say I put in the work because due to a slight miscommunication at Space the Nation headquarters, I assumed originally we were doing the Mist the film. And so I downloaded it and was starting to watch it. And thank God I texted Anna saying, <laughs> Anna, I'm not sure I'm supposed to be laughing at the film as much as, as I am. At which point we realized, no, 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 we're supposed to be doing the novella. Okay. But I'm actually glad I watched the film in that 
it like it it makes me appreciate the novella more yeah. because the novella works in a way that I don't think the film does. No. This is not Frank Darabont's best adaptation of a Stephen King project. It's a little weird, actually. It's a little weird. Some people consider it to be very good. It's the ending is little is infamous. The ending is amazing. Like, I will say this: he he took a big swing on the ending. He took a big swing on the ending. That is a brutal ending. It's yeah. Just uh, spoiler alert: brutal ending. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I will say that it. I think it suffers from being, you know, like fifteen years old or so. Like the creature effects are. Oh, the creature effects don't subpar. help. No, they're not good. <laughs> the cre- I, you know what the creature effects reminded me of? They reminded me of the TV show Galaxy Quest at the beginning of Galaxy Quest. Yeah, they're not they're, good. They're real bad. They're real. Yeah, the real tentacles bad. in particular. I was like, oh come on, man. Which like, is very no. disappointing because the novella contains, I think, some genuinely like gross, scary stuff. Yes. The, yeah. the creatures are described in a way like, you know. And what's weird is that, like, Garabat actually upped the ante in terms of the gore in, the, in a lot of cases. Like, the gore that you you see in the film, or you're supposed to be shocked by, is worse than whatever, than a lot of what King wrote about. Yeah. But it's not the same. No. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting example of, there's a little bit of a rule of thumb that mm-hmm. the closer a work hues to King's vision it's closer film hues to King's vision, the less successful it will be. <laughs> it's interesting. Cause like, Cause like the, this the best yeah. King adaptation is the shining, the shining which is right. just takes the book as kind of an idea <laughs> and, yeah. then, and then goes from there. And there's like, that's an interesting counterexample too, because the mist is interesting as a discussion point, because it's a good example of how the closer a work hues to King's original vision Mm-hmm. the less successful it is as a film. Interesting. And yeah. if you think about what the absolute best King adaptation is, it's The Shining. The Shining, right, yeah. Which which takes the book as a very loose kind of, <laughs> like, aroma. To, <laughs> yeah. It takes the know, vibe from The Shining. It takes yeah, the yeah, vibe. Yeah. It, it has a yeah. Shining vibe. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing. There's a direct comparison because there is a version of The Shining that's a TV movie that King was an executive oh. producer on. Huh. And it is not as good. And I think King has recently actually allowed. Like he used oh, to famously him. not like the Kubrick yeah, version yeah, yeah. of the, yeah, of the yeah. Shining, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. One of like top 10, I think oh. for me in, in general. This, as you, I think will have noticed, has like direct dialogue lifted from oh. the novella. A it is lot like of the, it is script, directly lifted. the script yeah. is basically... they. For, they basically just lifted the dialogue yeah. from the novella and put it in this movie, and it doesn't work as well. No, it really doesn't. Which, by the way, it works in the novella. A lot of it mm-hmm. does, but a, a bit like it. Yeah, there's stuff that, like, when they say it out loud, it's like, no, 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 no. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. He, he's very literary, our king, as I <laughs> would tell my. I actually got. To, I had to sit in the hall once. I got really heated with a. Oh my! English teacher, wow. seventh grade. Oh, I can picture. <laughs> I can picture twelve-year-old Anna really going to town, going at it on that one. Yep. All right. All right. Let's get to the story behind the story. Anna, I will say that one of the things I was worried about as we started reading this because I know this was written right around the time during his Richard Bachman days, and like you know, we've talked about Mexican writing binges, and I don't know if we're going to say the same thing about Stephen King, but like 
this is such a short thing. I was like, please tell me Stephen King did not write this in a 48 minute Richard Bachman <laughs> bender. He, he may well have been on a bender. Ah, there we go. This was uh, written in the late 70s, probably was originally published yeah, in 1980, so. which is pre-cocaine King. <laughs> so, true. There's there's a lot of drinking in this, but no no drugs. Yeah. Well, he rarely has drugs in his books in general, but the way you can tell uh, the cocaine era king from the beer era king is mainly in how much he wrote. Ah. <laughs> in the 1980s. Dan. Yes. He wrote 12 novels. That is just and short stories. And oh, I think he oh. also put out Dance Macabre, his like nonfiction book. So, and the Bachman novels. And the, oh, the Bachman, and not including the Bachman novels? Jesus Christ. Well, some of the Bachman novels. He wrote, wrote them kind of late 80s, early, yeah. late 70s, early 80s. So most of King's stuff, I believe you cannot, unless you're really, really looking. Mm-hmm. It's hard to tell, like, whether he was in his sober period or not. And I mean that as a compliment, right? Right. I, yeah. I, I don't He's a good writer. See, you don't see it very much. His preoccupation with sobriety pre-existed him getting sober. You know. Yeah, like, and by the way, I do think you let me put this way, there was a reason why I asked that question yeah. with this. Because like and it's also, by the way, interestingly enough, the biggest difference I think between the film and the book and yeah. the novella. It's fascinating in that sense. Yeah, there's a lot of drinking in the book. And I do think yeah. that is a product. That's a, a close, t- that's a tell, but not yes. one that would be super obvious to to people, I think. Mm-hmm. Just for trivia's sake, the last book he wrote when he was in his, the height of his using, which is beer and cocaine, apparently, was The Tommyknockers, which is a lot of people's, like, it's in the bottom five for a lot of people i kind of love it because it's so weird (laughs) it's about aliens that come to earth and make people really geniuses about like making things like tinkerers huh and then they also sort of subtly change their physiology it's and and there is an alcoholic in it who's safe from the alien head games because he has a metal plate in his head It is a wild ride. Uh, The other book that is, you can kind of tell, you know, not everything was super like normal. Yeah. Chemical wise is Dreamcatcher, which maybe people have read or seen the movie, both of which are really weird and bad. (laughs) And Dreamcatcher was written when King was recovering from that terrible accident that he was in that you may recall he was like this was in the 2000s right like yeah he was, was basically yeah. run off the side of a road not run off the side of a road. he was run over on the side of a road Jeez. by a van while he was on a, one of his daily walks in maine and he says he wrote dreamcatcher list gobbling oxys so oh, <laughs> i think he does not count that as a relapse because it was in the service of a period where he was like undergoing you know. Sure. No, he needed pain relief, but he nonetheless, like relief. that's. But yeah. maybe he should not have written a novel. That is what maybe. But he Fair was. Enough. He's also talked about how bored he was and how terrible. You know, it was a, mm. it was a very a way formative time for him as a writer. You can see the themes of that come up in his later <laughs> stuff. If you want to listen to a three or four hour discussion of some of that. <laughs> You can listen to the Losers Club, a bloody disgusting <laughs> podcast, available wherever podcasts are sold or downloaded or whatever. Yes, fair enough. One more thing about the story behind the story, which is this was also adapted into a terrible TV series that I remember being very excited about. 
and then did not finish. And I'm not even just, it, it, it existed. That's all people need to know. They made this into a television series? Like Series. That, I have to say, like, like having read this is like, maybe, maybe you could do like a two-part movie or something, but like anything beyond that, you are stretching yeah. way beyond the source material. Oh, I need to say, I am on the panel for, I think, both the Tommyknockers and Dreamcatcher for the Losers Clubs episodes. So <laughs> if you, you. want to hear me go off about how these are like really kind of classics. <laughs> I'm actually, the episodes that I've done for Losers Clubs are almost all like things that other people don't want to do. So right, because like, you you've done Under the Dome as well. I did yes. Under the Dome. And then also I did, he, he wrote a Bachman King like two books that were kind of interrelated, uh, Desperation, and then I can't remember the name of the other one, although Desperation is actually the one I have right here next to me. And the mm -hmm. other one was called Regulators, the Regulators. Oh, okay. And those are also not especially fondly looked on by a lot of people, but I, I, the weirder came, I love the kind of weirder stuff. Mm -hmm. And also I did another episode that was about sobriety and came, recovery and came, oh. so. Interesting. People want to look that up. We can move on and talk about our podcast. Yes. Anyway. Checkoffs, what's it? Checkoffs, what's it? That's what we're doing. Click. Yep. This is the thing that often appears in the first act of whatever it is that we're reading that winds up recurring and playing a role in the third act. I have to say, it was actually kind of hard to find one in this case, Anna. I have Chekhov's Arrowhead Project. I mean, military industrial complex. Like, sure. It's sort of vaguely referred to throughout the book and potentially is the fault of what winds up ensuing. But... I don't think there's a ton that is like referenced and then winds up being called back to. I think that's actually a mark of a good piece of writing yeah, in a way yeah. that there's nothing like super obvious. There's nothing like, obvious, oh, right. You know, yeah. that's going to come back later. I all I just have Chekhov's Scout, like Chekhov's four-wheel <laughs> drive. Which is technically, yeah, though no, that's absolutely fair. Yeah. 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 So yeah. now for book episodes, uh, you your brain was broken when we <laughs> did... <laughs> Yes. The Gone World. Yes. And so we had to reassess how we do book episodes. Book episodes. Absolutely correct. I We probably could have done this one under the old rules because like yeah. King's plot is very clean in that way. So yeah. I, I have no apologies to that. But generally speaking, whenever we do either like television series, like seasons or, or books, we, uh, instead of going through the plot in a very detailed way, we will talk about sort of provide the jacket blurb version of the plot, then we'll talk about the characters and so on and so forth. So let's get to the jacket blurb. What happens when a small main vacation town confronts something inexplicable? What usually happens in a Stephen King novella? All kinds of bad shit. A storm hits the lake town of Bridgeton, Maine, knocking out the power and blowing out trees everywhere. The next day, our protagonist, David Drayton, his small son, Billy, and his not-so-nice out-of-town neighbor, Brent Norton, carpool into town to go grocery shopping at Federal Foods. As they are waiting in line to check out, a straight-line mist that David had seen on the lake earlier in the day envelops the town. Someone runs into the store yelling, There's something in the fog! Which, again, Anna, in terms of the movie, this was a bad sign when the actor who did that came in. I did just immediately laugh. Like, it was not... And I shouldn't have had to do that. So, you know, but yeah. Yeah. And that's not fake news on them. Everyone stays in the store. No, I... And it's, it's oh, true. sorry. I apologize. You're right. Almost everyone stays in the store. Some people and leave it, and they hear the screams. Right. Some people leave. They hear the screams. A, a mother of small children actually does leave the store because she has to get back to her children. 
An attempt to fix the store's generator causes David and manager Ali to see tentacles, grab one of the bagging clerks, and kill him. They try to inform the other denizens, and folks at the store, including Norton, managers Bud and Ollie, schoolteacher Mrs. Repler, and local religious fanatic Mrs. Carmody, have a variety of reactions. Things get worse that evening when giant winged insects and even larger pterodactyl-like buzzards attack the store through the front glass. The community within the store starts to crack up. The locals resent the out-of-towners, the blue-collar folks think they're being talked down to by the educated, and Anna, an awful lot of people respond to the situation (laughs) by drinking. (laughs) An excursion to the neighboring pharmacy ends disastrously. Mm. Mrs. Carmody begins quoting from the Book of Revelations, attracting more and more followers. Eventually, David, Billy, Ollie, Mrs. Repler, and a few others decide they have no choice but to make a run for David's scout and flee the scene. They escape the store, but not without casualties. Will the remaining survivors survive for much longer? King leaves the ending ambiguous, but as someone who grew up in the Farmington Valley, Anna, this is the first book I have ever read where the word Hartford is viewed as a sign of hope. Well, you know, it's an insurance capital. <laughs> the insurance capital of the world. Anna, does that about <laughs> sum it up? I think that we should dwell just a little bit on the opening scene setting. Yeah. Because I think that's some of his best writing. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it's it conjures up what's going to be destroyed, right? Which yeah. is very important in the, in any kind of horror novel. Like mm-hmm. it's not just there's a domesticity. He he writes about the wife and his kid mm-hmm. and their home, and not just their home, but like the way it feels for him. Right? Yeah, it, there's an idyllic aspect. I mean, there there is an I- idyllic aspect to our protagonist's life, and also like as, as you said, like this was and again, this was the problem with the film version. In the film version, you're at like maybe the 12 or 13 minute mark when yeah. things go sideways would, and it I, escalates way too goddamn quickly. And so it doesn't, it doesn't set the stages at well at all. In the novella, King's economy of prose is amazing. And like, I, I, I love the depiction of the home. I also love the depictions of when Brent comes over and he doesn't like Brent eyeballing his wife. Like again, yeah. it's like, there's maybe a page of that, not that much, but it's enough. Well, again, economy of prose and also playing out the line enough so that things get complicated already. Like there's yeah. already a relationships that we recognize. Right, exactly. And complicated relationships. Because what yeah. I love about what he does with Norton, his neighbor, yeah. is you see Norton as human, first of all. Exactly. Yes. That's you uh, you're see, right. It's, you see him trying to start his his chainsaw, chainsaw. Yeah. and not being able to, and we understand that he's lost his wife recently and he's yeah. been grieving. And they have, a, weight, yeah. they have a moment of human connection. You're right. It's also- really important for the rest of the book. I agree. And the other nice thing about that is that Drayton acknowledges that like there was a petty side of him that was enjoying that, but he also recognizes, oh man, wait, you know, this is a moment when we actually have to like, you know, play nice and we have to be friends and so on and so forth. Like, you're right. And again, this all happens in the span of maybe 10 pages. It's not a lot of, of prose, but he does a great job of setting that up. And then, so when the horrors do come, it, you know, the stakes are there. We understand what our protagonist is giving up. You know, this is all, and like even references to Mrs. Carmody in the past, like, you know, like wind up. And when Norton goes in the direction he goes, there is a sense of betrayal and what could have been. And there's a sense of tragedy. It's a sourness and a tragedy yeah. to it that wouldn't be yeah. there in the in, in the movie. He's just kind of a dick the entire time. Like there's yeah, a little I, bit like 
that actor, Andre Brar, Andre Brar, good, great. Yeah. And so th- he gives enough subtlety to it that you kind right. of see some of that, but not enough, right? Well, I hate to not say this. What do I? What do I take away from watching the film? And this is a legitimate thing. It's a side point to this, but like. Andre Brar has had an amazing television career. Mm-hmm. He's iconic in Homicide. He's iconic in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But his film choices, I, I Andre, you need a good agent because yeah. like you can do amazing work and you're being put in stuff that like it just like this is one of his better film roles. Is the way <laughs> put it. I, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, you know, I, he, I've seen him in other stuff. But. I'm not going to say he does a lot with a little. He does some with a little. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So, and I like I have some stuff I'm probably going to put in debris field. That there's just some pieces of writing from that first section that I think are mm-hmm. again king at his most economical best. Yeah, yeah. All right. This raises the obvious question: How is this science fiction different from all other science fictions? And Anna, I think my answer is is that I don't think it is. In that. This is a very simple story, and I think it's a plot that King has used before. It's just a simple story that is well told. I, I think three things come out, you know, having having read this novella. The first is, and I'm sorry, this really affected me, the drinking. Jesus Christ, There's the drinking, drinking on it. There is a lot of drinking in this, and like a lot of drinking that like, I, I'm not a teetotaler, but I'm like reading this, it's like, who thinks having a beer at 10 a.m.? To like chainsaw stuff is like perfectly normal. It was it was like just weird, and maybe it's maybe like in the nineteen eighty this is perfectly normal, but it was very strange. I think there's me. a little time warp problem, yeah. and then there's also what was normal for King. Yes, exactly. What I was going to say, like it, King is telling on himself in those yeah. things. Like he's also telling on himself when he has the idea. He keeps saying, "Oh yeah, I'll like basically from the moment the mit, like the the incident happens in the back, I don't think there's a moment where Ollie is not drinking." And yet in King's version of it, he's drinking constantly. He just never gets drunk because according to King, he just sweats it out. And that's not how alcohol works, Anna. Nope. No. Nope. 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 And Brent is drinking. You know, Norton drinks constantly. Our protagonist is drinking. I loved how there was a wino section versus a beer section in the yeah. in the store. But like it was it it was honestly like it it was It's off-putting. almost distracting. Yeah, it really, no, it was off-putting. It's the one thing that I was like, ooh, I don't know about this. And like, again, it starts from like page five at yeah. on, like, you know, so at that was- in, in The Shining, he's supposed to be an alcoholic. Right, exactly. <laughs> but in theory, in all of these characters, they're not supposed to be alcoholics. I'm like, no, they're all alcoholics, Otto. Like, I'm yeah. pretty, like, they're they're treated as such. So that, it's a, what like, it, that was why I, 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 this is why I texted you asking this question, because- like reading this, it was like, oh, you do not have a grasp on your drinking yet, do you, Stephen King? Yeah. The brevity, this is a very quick read. It shouldn't be any longer. He really does so much with short, simple sentences. I mean, it's almost Hemingway-esque at times, like in terms of, of the writing, and it's incredibly well done. And it is also, and this this is actually does come through in the movie, but it also comes through in the book. This is just a incredibly effective microcosm of white America, and let's be clear, it's white America. Okay, this it's is like Maine. rural Maine. It's Maine, yeah. You yeah. know, like you know, I mean, there is Andre Brar in the film, but like in the in the book, there these are all white people. Let's be let's be yeah. blunt. And yeah, it's like cross cutting resentments. It's like the out of towners versus the locals, the educated versus the, you know the the sort of blue collar guys, the people who are like in the normal times leaders versus during emergency times and so forth. Like you know, it really. It, it it effectively portrays yeah. what he does is he creates this little society and shows how it falls apart. 
Yes. And I think that what is different about it is kind of just the skill, right? Yeah. It is yeah. It is just how good it is because it's yes. a familiar plot in a thousand different ways. It's a familiar right. plot because it's a, a genre plot, mm-hmm. invasion, you know, like yeah, yeah, aliens. Yeah. That's, that's, that's our podcast, right? <laughs> like, yeah. And then it's also an incredibly familiar King plot. He has about 10 of them. You know that he he does different versions of. And Do you have has, a favorite King plot? I'm curious. Like you know, I like the apocalyptic ones. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm you know I like the Stand is one of my favorite King books. Mm-hmm. I also like his just he does do just scary right, just like yeah, monster. Yeah. So it is one of my favorites as well. I think the apocalyptic and the sort of creature or big bad ones are my favorite. But this is a he also this is does both. yeah. And then this one also is a particular version of apocalyptic, which is when you put all a bunch of people together in a crisis situation, like what happens, right? No, this is in some ways a zombie, like it, it isn't, but it, like it, 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 it fits the zombie genre as well, because the zombie genre is never about the zombies. It's about how people react to that. Right. And that's really what this book is concerned with. I mean, the creature stuff is interesting and King delivers on that. As you say, the descriptions are... Again, like it's it's like a pontilla. It's like a, it's like three brushstrokes, and you you know what he's talking about. Yeah, and that's, that's incredibly so effective. But it's the it's the interpersonal stuff that's really fascinating. And what's interesting is that that is a favorite plot of his. Is you throw a bunch of people together in the end of the world, and this version is a hundred and something pages, and then yeah. there's the stand. <laughs> <laughs> yes. you know? So when we say he has a couple different plots, he, there are ways to do very different things with the same plot, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think this is just a particularly good version of his small mm-hmm. town folks forced into close quarters to fight a supernatural force. And it's an unusual version of his typical Mary Sue. Uh, or, and and Mary Sue, do you different. mean, un- yeah, like, because I wouldn't, I, I would push back. I don't think David's a Mary Sue. So like. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, guess I should. Okay. He's not a Mary Sue. And that is. Okay. Yeah. yeah, not yeah. The, not the, it, that's, that's unfair to call it a Mary Sue. But he, right. as people who might have read even just two or three King books know, mm-hmm. uh, his protagonists tend to be writers or school teachers. Like they tend to have something that they do something that King did, which is right. write what you know. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. Right. As he's gone on in his career, he's kind of varied it a, a bit, but um in this, we have a character who's definitely not king, even yes. though he's a creative professional. He's an artist. He's a commercial mm-hmm. artist. Right. And I think it's interesting. And I, I kind of wonder, so King had had Carrie, right? Which was mm-hmm. like this out huge of success. nowhere, yeah. huge success. I think he got paid like, it's. I think it's in the hundreds of dollars maybe that he got paid, I mean, oh maybe God. a couple thousand, mm-hmm. you know, by... Putnam, I, I think. And then, of course, it's his career. And ever since then, he has not had a book that tanked, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting. And I wonder what, what he was going through that he wrote this character who's not, whose career is financially fine. But artistically. But he's not an artist. Like, he's not. Well, what I, so let me put it this way. What I wonder is, again, during the time, I think the Stephen King of today is probably pretty comfortable with where he stands in sort of mm-hmm. the annals of American letters. I am quite confident. I, you, you, please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm betting the Stephen King of the late 1970s was in, actually extremely anxious about where he stood. That he was a commercial success, but I don't think he was a critical success at that point. And I wonder I, if like, so in other words, I think maybe he saw a little more of himself in David than maybe you think. 
because he thought of himself as, you know, like, or, or maybe he had internalized a little too much of the criticism. Is, is that's the what, I guess that's what I mean when I'm trying to say. It's like, it's a, his, yeah. his protagonists that bear somewhat of a resemblance to him tend to be writers who are doing okay or weirdly school teachers. That's kind of mm-hmm. his two big things. This is just a particularly interesting one that has a monologue and has some thoughts. I think yeah. some of the most interesting stuff in the in the story about yeah. his career and his he has apparently a, a famous like a Frank White like sort of father. Sam seems mm-hmm. like yeah. Christina standing alone hangs in the White House, his father's masterpiece. And I think that is King kind of working through like, am I okay? Just like selling a kajillion copies of something. Right. I think he is. I think he now is. He is. I'm not sure if he was okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure if he was okay then. And the other, but the other thing I will say is that this is an interesting character in terms of the self knowledge that he has. Yeah. And yeah. that yeah that made him. Speaking well, of well, see, I think I yeah. think that David just just a little bit more about David. I yeah. think he he David has comfort with who he is. Right. I think yeah. you're right. The king of that period. Yes, we does don't not. Know. Yes, but that's correct. He, through the character of David, I think King is working on that. Interesting. And it is also interesting to me, though, the ambivalent or the complication of he feels very comfortable with his his being like a commercial artist. Right. Fine. Mm-hmm. He also is not one of the competent people in the store. No, this is what I found legitimately fascinating. Like, it, and maybe this is something that makes it different because it's written as if he is the leader of his group in terms of like you know, rationality in terms of survival and so on and so forth. And yet he is far from the most competent character. He fucks up repeatedly during, you know, this thing. His instincts might have been okay, but like he doesn't handle Norton well. Like that whole exchange where he's like, he realizes intuitively he wants to have Norton on his side so he can calm everyone else. That's a good instinct. But the way he tries to persuade Norton is horribly handled. And, you know. And And I think he realizes that. But after, but, but in some ways that like, and that's that's where the structure of this works because he, yeah. the, the structure of the novella is he's writing this after all of these events, trying to say what he he did, and I think in some ways like there's a way in which by writing it, presumably Drayton is like, yeah, this is where I screwed up, and like this is where you know like this is where we made mistakes and so forth. Yeah. But in the moment, he screws up a number of times on this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I again, I worth reading y- y'all yeah. if you haven't already at this point. Like I, it's. It, it, he does, as you said it, like there is so much in this hundred and something story. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, there's, it, it packs a punch. Yes. So speaking of which, we've talked about David Drayton a bunch. Right. Dan, other characters? Well, as you say, like, I think the thing that struck me reading this is the way in which King valorizes competency under stress, which David does not, I mean, he's not the worst by far, but he's also not the best. So the two characters that stood out to me by far are Ollie and Mrs. Repler, the teacher. They are, you know, Ollie in particular is like, I, I actually wish, to the extent that I wish there was more description, I wanted to hear more about Ollie. Yeah. Because like, you know, it's this question of how does this assistant store manager, you know, behave who when the shit gets, you know, rough, he's the only one who can fire a gun. He's the one who has a better read of people, you know, and, and, and he's the one whose death, just a, you know, spoiler alert, is the mo- in some ways the most tragic. I did love Toby Jones in that role. He was great. Yes, I agree. Toby Jones was fantastic. And like, he, I think, was the best thing in the film. Yeah. In terms of the casting, Toby Jones was great. And also, I will say Lori Holden 
was the perfect choice to play Amanda, I think is her name. Yeah, Amanda. Which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. And also, and Frances Steenburgen plays Mrs. Repler in yes. the film. She's great also. I like the portrayal of Mrs. Carmody. I have to admit, like, I don't, I'm not as much deep into the King Uber as you are. So, like, I know that religious fanatics are a recurring theme in in King novels, but I will King, say- You know, like, fundamentalist Christians, that is a big time- Happy horse for him. Let me put this way. King does something structural about the Mrs. Carmody character that I think works well, which is her first instincts when the mist comes are actually accurate. Yeah. And so, and there, like, there's a couple other times where she says something's like, oh, whoa, she knew that. Or like, you know, she knew it for crazy reasons or she's guessing, whatever. But the point is, is that she's right just enough so that you can't completely dismiss her as a loon. And because she becomes lunatic very quickly. But like, I think structurally by making her right, in like her initial instincts, it, it gives the character a touch more weight than perhaps the sort of standard religious belly. Yeah, I think she is in the, you know, on the bell curve of his success with portraying uh, yeah. fundamentalist Christians as actual humans. Right, exactly, I agree. He, yeah. She is towards the human side, and right. I think- Not completely, but definitely not trending completely, in that but there's definitely, and also there's a complication with her too, right? Which is that she starts out making sense and right. also, I don't think she doesn't turn to the blood sacrifice stuff right away. <laughs> no, but it goes, but she does go there pretty fast. quickly. It goes, pretty, goes yeah. pretty fast. Yeah. But her first kind of talk about this stuff, it makes kind of sense. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. This does seem like the end times. Yeah. You know, you can understand why she, she goes in that direction. His speed, the speed with which she goes to blood sacrifice is his, is the tell about how yeah. he feels about fundamentalist Christians. Yeah, exactly. Though that was the one thing, that was the one thing where it felt like the movie, I guess would yeah. be the way to put it. Where it's like, nope, too fast. Just, yeah. Just slow down your role. And then, you know, the Brent Norton character, you know, who's only in it for, what, half the novella, I think. But as you say, like, is in there during the crucial early scenes in terms of the scene setting. And, like, in some ways, you, in terms of, like, figuring out the interior life of the character, beyond Drayton, that's the other one that you, and Billy, that's the other character you really get to know. And so I thought that was, you know, very well done. What about you, Anna? Well, I think we have to talk about Amanda Dumfries, Dan. <laughs> I resisted on this one, but I'm happy to talk about her now. So, yes. She is the very hot, <laughs> like, hot pants. She's not wearing literally hot pants. But no, but her she's... pants get commented upon a lot, and then he's into them. <laughs> like, he's into them in more ways than one, if you know oh, what my, I mean, yes. Dan. <laughs> wait, wait, nudge, nudge? Yes, yes. She's, you know, King's not great with female... Well, he's... I could do a whole episode about... I have lots mm -hmm. to say about King and female characters, but she's she's fine as a character. Yeah. I will say 13-year-old Anna was fascinated by this. <laughs> because yes. it's mm -hmm. in the extreme, in extremists, they have sex, right? right. Yep. Like he's married, she's married. She's married as well. In fact, she calls out, I believe, her husband's name while yes. they're having sex. Yes, yes. but it, it's the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And so... They have sex. And I remember under, like, number one, hadn't had sex myself yet. So I was like, yeah, you'd want to do that. That would be on my list. You know? <laughs> so, Anna, let me just, I want to say, like, that is the classic teenage thinking about the yeah. end of the world. Because yeah. I've seen things, I remember watching things like, 
Oh yeah, absolutely. If it's the end of the world and you haven't had sex, yeah. you got to do that. That's yeah, like sex, yeah, sure. as you get older, you realize that maybe that's not the most realistic things of how things would go down. But yeah, at on. thirteen, I thought this actually makes sense to me, though. Like, yes, I mean, I, right. it seems like a realistic version of the thing that's kind of a joke, right? Right. Yeah. And also, I remember thinking, have being very kind of pondering the morality of it, mm-hmm. like yeah. little young me you know, like all teenagers have a huge moral streak, right? right. Like oh, really? I'm shocked to hear that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and under kind of understanding like, huh, like, is that wrong? Like <laughs> I, I, you're laughing, but like, I think. No, no, no. It's, it's, let me put it this way. The problem is, is that it's fiction, but like, you're right. If you're, if you really take seriously what's going on, it's, it's an, it is a question worth asking. Like if you really do think the world's going to end, and, you know, I, I, Drayton doesn't say it, but like, it's clear he thinks his wife is probably dead. Yeah. You know. I don't know. Like, for 13 year old me, it was like yeah. a very interesting, like, way of thinking about things that I right. had not, right. like, thought about. The thing that I was, I was kind of stunned by was like, again, it's the brevity. It's a half page scene. Mm-hmm. Like, Thank literally, God. I think it's like, a, he does it, not. Oh my God. On the other podcast, we have a section we call Pound Cake. And it's devoted to King writing about sex. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love that it's called Pound Cake. That's well, great. yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah, yeah. they're not good. Dis- they're not good. No, you know, no. quotes. I, like, not- <laughs> I, well, I guess the, the thing the thing I will say about King, like in this case, brevity works for him because, yep. like, it was, sure. I remember reading and thinking, okay, yeah, sure, fine. Like, you know, and it's yeah. clear. It, it actually, in some ways, it works even better because yes. it works even better for the moral question because it's clear that in the context of the way Drayton's writing it, it's like. We just want each other. Let's get this done. And and like literally, it's like they it's never talked about the entire rest of the except when Mrs. Carmody yells whore. Yeah. But like that's the only other time it's it's mentioned. So yes, yes, yes I agree. All right, we can move on from that. I, we can we, we've talked about it longer than King thought about it. So I will, but I will close with this. Lori Holden in the movie does a nice job. And in some ways, like actually it made like it, it she does a better job of that character, even though they don't have the sex scene. But like you like the Darabont, that was one of the good things he does. He sort of plays the attraction in a more low-key way, and I actually like the way he handled it. Yeah. I want to talk about Ollie for just a second. Yeah. King, in before he could actually say characters were gay, <laughs> yes. he, tended to have, he tended to have this kind of character come in every once in a while, where I think King is like, so for me, he's infamously like boomer liberal, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he wants to be on the right side of stuff. He really does. And he wants to signal, I'm okay with gay people. Like, or not (laughs) wants to signal. I guess he he also just knows they exist. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be too, it's not just that he wants to display that. No, the way I would put it is, I mean, I I don't know how to describe this, but you can, there's a sentence where King describes Ali where you can tell he's sort of grasping in the dark to try to figure out how he's, I think he knows intuitively what's going on, but he can't actually say it. Does that make any sense? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think he really loves that character too. And that comes oh, yeah. through. Like, which is one of the things that I, the, one of the many things I love about King, again, I could go on. You know when he loves his characters and he tends to love all of them. Like, yeah. in, even his villains. There's, there's mm-hmm. a lot of like affection and care that you feel like he doesn't hate the people he's writing about, even when right. he's writing. And that's why sometimes like- Even when they're doing hateful things. Yeah. Is a problem because yeah. those are the characters every once in a while he hates. Yeah, yeah, they're I not agree. as good. Yeah. So I liked I liked Ali a lot. I liked his competency. I loved that he's just a sharpshooter. Like, 
Yeah. You know, so the, the that, sentence that, that made me think the sense that made me think of all this was where he says, I always had the idea that Ollie was a little afraid of girls. And I was like, oh, so Ollie's gay then, just to be clear. Like, you know, that was my reaction. And that's just, he, the only, in 1980 or 1970, yeah. whatever, right. like that's, oh, and he has a pinky ring too. That's the yeah, other yeah. thing about Ollie. Yeah. I want to give a shout out to his relationship, to David's relationship with Billy, which you and I texted a bit about, yes. which I found as the child skeptic <laughs> found incredibly endearing and true to life. Although you're, I mean, I guess we could say that I could compare to how I feel about my pets, but I don't think people don't like it when you do that. No, so, it's yeah. Let me put it this way. The thing that King gets right in the novella, it feels really right. To it me, feels, yeah. You are the expert. It, 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 it's the, it's the roller coaster of emotion is the way I would put it. Like he actually does get into Billy's head and like, you know, where he's like fearful and then he's happy. And like, there's a sentence he's got where he talks about being utterly scared about how adaptable kids are. Oh, yeah. And it's a great way of describing how Billy is throughout most of this book. And yeah, it's like you get, you feel David's love for the, for his child and his need to protect his child. And I think also the other thing that comes through is this lurking dread that David has that he loves and wants to protect his child. And he's not sure he can. Yeah. And, you know, it's unstated, but it works really well. Yeah. I can't remember the exact line, but it, it's in that first part that I think is so important where he talks about the ways that parents imagine bad things happening to their kids. Right. Like that fear that comes. And I do, I mean, that's a loved one thing. It's not just a kid's thing, right? But yeah. I'm sure there, I, I know that there is a special kind of terror for parents, mm -hmm. right? And that is an undercurrent throughout the story is that his fear about something bad happening to Billy, his fear of not being able to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And in a fear that like, he's already done something that there's already something that's broken that he's not going to be able to fix. That yeah. I think again, there's so much happening in this very short piece. No, I, again, I, it, it, he, he I want to like, teach it now that I'm thinking, now that I'm talking about it. Like, I think you absolutely, way, if you teach another creative writing class, this, I, I, I see why this would go on the syllabus. Is the way I yeah. Yeah. I was going to talk more about Mrs. Carmody, but I think we we have talked about her yeah, again, probably so. more that King really thought about her. So yeah. rather than discuss her any further, I have a question. Dan. Oh, yes, Anna? Is there IR in this novella? Jesus Christ in a chariot-driven sidecar, Anna. Of course there's IR in this novella. Did you just try to do a main accent, Dan? No, I did not. Okay. I, right. Do you want me to try that? Because I don't no. think it would, it, it no. would not go well. No, no, no. no. no, no. no. Sorry. No. Good. Continue. Yeah. Why'd you read the rest of Jason Statham accent? <laughs> it's an interesting spin on it. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. It is an interesting spin on what is a standard genre premise, which is when everything goes to hell, what happens to society and what is the source of power? Traditionally, what happens in these scenarios is that, you know, Traditional sources of authority break down. It's whoever has the guns. What's interesting to me is that that's not how it works in this story. In this story, the source of power is the power of persuasion. So can David convince Norton that what he saw in the back was real and thereby having Norton confirm it and then, you know, communicate it to everyone else? Can Mrs. Carmody persuade others that actually, no, this is just the end times and we all need to follow the rules according to the book of Revelation? So... 
David thinks about this ex- in explicitly political terms. There's a, a sequence where, you know, Amanda and, and, and Mrs. Repler and Ollie are saying, I think we need to get out of the store. And it's because Mrs. Carmody is starting to attract more adherence to her theology. And after they sell this to David, David says, and let me quote here, I understood the worry on their faces. It was enough to make them the largest political force in the market, especially now that Dan and Mike were gone. The thought that the biggest single group in our closed system was listening to her rant about the pits of hell and the seven vials being open made me feel pretty damn claustrophobic. So it's the only worst use of the word political in the entire novella, but it's actually entirely on point. Um, and the interesting thing, again, what makes this a good novel is that the question of persuasion is not a de novo thing. It's not like, even though they're all thrown into a unique situation, everyone is coming into this scenario with pre-existing prejudices, pre-existing class resentments, and those things affect how these people respond. It explains why Norton isn't persuaded by David. It explains why some of the you know, the, the blue collar guys don't like what David says at first and wind up, attra- you know, following Mrs. Carmody. Um, and that's interesting. So on the one hand, it's a, a little, you know, anarchical society. And there's a way in which power in the end does flow from the barrel of the gun, namely Ollie's ability to actually shoot. But the real source of power in this novella is the power to attract. And in this situation, the only things that seem to attract are A, competency and B, religion. You know, and in some ways, the novel is a scary suggestion that religion often wins out in those scenarios. And for understandable reasons, because things that are unexplainable are happening. And when things that are unexplainable are happening, it's tough for rationality or competency to win out. It becomes easier to say, we need to have a theology to explain what's going on. So there is also a part where he does a little sociology, Dan. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised you didn't bring it up because there's a mention of zombies. It's true. Yeah, yeah. I thought that your like ears, you know, <laughs> the zombie radar gets gets pricked. Yes. Uh, so he's talking about how he's talking to another a novelist friend, and that the Weird Tales magazine went broke in the fifties. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I quite buy this, but I'll quote it. So when machines fail, he had said, while his wife candled the eggs and roosters crowed querulously outside. <laughs> when the technologies fail, when the conventional religious systems fail. People have got to have something. Even a zombie lurching through the night can seem pretty cheerful compared to the existential comedy horror of the ozone layer dissolving under the combined assault of a million fluorocarbon spray cans of deodorant. So I think it's not entirely clear to me what he's saying here, actually. So I think I, I, live this way, the different, I think King is trying to make a distinction between religion in these sort of traditional Protestant, you know, like highest high church version right. of religion, and then Mrs. Carmody and these sort of more, you know, wackadoodle. Yeah, that's okay. That's a good technical term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what he's trying to go for here, because I would say that you know, in some ways, that's how religion uh, prospers. The more intriguing argument he's making is that no, no, no. When things really go bad, the version of religion that winds up emerging is the one that is the quackiest. I think that's what he's saying. And I think he's saying also that we are attracted to horror when the world is going wild. Maybe. Because because horror seems, and this is something like, this is the Bruno Bettelheim uh, theory about why children like fairy tales or why Uh we we read fairy tales to children is because the horrors of the world are uncontrollable. Whereas in a fairy tale, 
Like it may be scary, there's a structure. but there's a structure and we know yeah. how it's going to end. Yeah. That is, yeah, I can, that, that. I, yeah. I honestly think that we're confused because he's a little confused. Yes. Like this is like, it's a very smart political analysis that he just did. Right. And then here, this is a little of King trying to make sense of his place in the world. Right. I think you're like, right. Again, like there's, there's aspects of this where you can feel King fumbling towards something. And I don't think he quite has the right grasp on it just yet. Yeah. But like he has a grasp on a lot of other stuff, which yes. again makes this incredibly good. So yeah. yeah. Speaking of having a grasp on things, Anna, I have a question for you. Ah, yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this novella? Dan, I'm going to tell you all the lies capitalists keep in reserve for bad situations. <laughs> the ones that sound so damn plausible to a child. And I will tell you them in a tone of perfect conviction. <laughs> Oh, the critique of capitalism. I mean, the, the, the one guy who tries to uphold the market, right? Mm-hmm. Literally uphold the market yeah. in this story <laughs> is treated as a fool, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But I think there's a more interesting kind of read too, which is just the question of, and, and there isn't anything more than that because I think most people intuitively are kind of like, well, in a real crisis situation, of course you would like eat the stuff in the store, right? Yeah, yeah, like. Yeah. That's a crisis, and and we would we would have, uh, you know, you there. Riots happen after a little while, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the immediate aftermath of a catastrophe, people do tend to kind of like, eh, all right, I guess we got to share. Right. This is the Rebecca Solnit right. argument that you and I we, have both made, which uh, which I think is very plausible. It's plausible for a short period of time. Things can fall apart, but at least in the immediacy, you're absolutely and, right. And you can take advantage of that too. Like yeah. if you operate in the right way, you probably can keep people together for a while. Mm. And I, yes, I believe that. Here's the thing, Dan, I think we're in that crisis. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, I, I think that, that we are not sharing and sharing alike for some reason. And I think it's because people don't realize the circumstances we're in. Hmm. There are creatures in the midst, Dan coming to get us creatures born of humans fucking around with nature uh. hurricanes Uh. droughts Mm -hmm. and heat waves and fires and novel coronaviruses and food chains collapsing and a lack of groundwater Mm. like i was doing research for this tnr piece that i wrote that hopefully will be out by now Mm -hmm. people are listening to this last year there were three million adults displaced in america because of uh, catastrophes related to climate change. Okay. Now that's not a lot for the whole country, right? But, but that's it's still a lot of people. That's still like, a lot. It's yeah. actually like three times as many in any year past. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, we are getting to a point, and then the Times just did a big story about the lack of groundwater, mm. um, groundwater crisis. Like mm. art, art, artisanal? They're not artisanal. Artesian? Artesian. What that are the wells? The wells. The wells. You mean groundwater wells? Groundwater. That there's wells anyway. Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. Wells. I know because there's one in Austin that are going dry. Actually, mm-hmm. here in Austin, Barton Springs, which most people who have been to Austin know something about, it's kind of an infamous natural swimming hole. It is like shrunk in half. You know, mm. like there's there are natural there are several natural spring uh, swimming holes here that are going to have to close because there's it's a drought, but not just a drought we have used up the reserves of water that we have. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I feel like this, this, this doesn't get, t- it's depressing, 
but like this is an existential crisis, Dan. <laughs> it is. You the know problem this. is no. You I know. know look, Ada, I teach a course called "The End of the World," so I'm right. I'm certainly sympathetic to this. The problem is, is that in a way, it comes out like the mist, but without the creatures. It's just yeah. this slow rolling mist. And the problem is, is that it's precisely because it's slow moving, and this is how it, and this is where the King novel is different from what you're talking about. Yeah. Even, even like you know, Norton thought that something weird was going on at first. Like everyone acknowledged this was something weird, and like we have to react and change our behavior as a result. The problem is, is that the crisis, the crises that we are experiencing in the real world, have been so slow moving that Don't everyone thinks fast. they have time. I know. if we want to wait for them to get to be the bugs like the sucker bugs slamming up against the plate glass window Mm -hmm. like we'll get that yeah and in our lifetime in the past 10 or 20 years it has gotten yeah worse worse oh yeah absolutely yeah and i don't know i was just again i just read this piece in the times about groundwater and like looking at my fucking phone. I have, you know, the last three alerts I've gotten on my phone, Dan, one is for heat precautions, right? It's, it's going to be yeah. another, it was only 99 today, but it's been hundred degrees almost every day since July. And then I got a notice about water usage. And then I got a notice about air quality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Next flying bug sucking creatures. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, we can, we can go on. I, I think yeah. our listeners are, I am as it were preaching. I am Mrs. You have, Harmony you, preaching. Your flock is already, already there. Yeah. Yes, yes. My flock is already there. But oh, wait. Sometimes I get I'm hearing bugs. <laughs> oh my God. It's the medical thing. <laughs> it's the debris field. This is when we uh, have things that we have not talked about yet that we will bring up in the final portion of the podcast. (laughs) That's a very, you you wore a suit for this episode and I feel like that was your suit talking. That was my suit talking. I feel like, what was the other store manager's name? Not Ollie, the the fool. Bud? Bud, yes. I feel like Bud wearing this. I think that was part of the reason why I kept this on. Yeah. Yes, yes. Anna, what do you have? I have a bunch of stuff that are just the pretty writing that yeah. I wanted to, to, to mention. And this is, there's a few from the beginning. Uh, he talks about um, the storm coming in. He says, I could see the delicate call of rain extending down. Mm-hmm. Use the word call there is, I wouldn't have thought of it. It's, a, it's an, again, that's so short a sentence, but I know what he's saying. And another really short thing, he's talking about some live wires on the ground, which is where he first experiences terror for his son, right? Is there mm-hmm. live wires down by this down from the storm? And he says, one of them humped up and turned over lazily as if beckoning. Like gorgeous and true and scary. All mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. Uh, Dan, what about you? I've got a few more, but I'll just pace them out. I'll, I'll pace no, no, I was going to say, I've, I'm going to look through the writing. Uh, in terms of character beats, I did want to say, I did like the contrast. I think that there were two other leaders that I didn't talk about. One was Mike, who was like a local oh, yeah. town selectman. And the other was Dan, who was an out-of-towner from like Massachusetts. And mm-hmm. what was interesting was, again, I, it, it's not a huge thing, but I like what King did, which is Mike, who is supposed to be the elected leader, clearly is pretty useless. Like, his instincts are right, but he can't like lead anyone. Dan, on the other hand, you know, 
funny, sharp, like he's the one who first thinks we've got to defend ourselves. Like he doesn't make a wrong decision. I think it's actually a brief moment where David says like he was the kind of guy that you liked immediately. And then over the longer term wanted to dislike because he was right and like better than you were. And I, that speaking of writing, that's a lovely, like that's the capture that captures a sentiment that we have all experienced, you know, encountering other people, you know? And so that was, that was extremely well done. Uh, I will give a shout out to all the brand names that he uses, which I, I always kind of registers in my head because when I had that argument that I eventually got sent to the hall about, one of the points that my English teacher made was that he uses brand, King uses all these brand names and that's like commercialist or whatever, like that it's, <laughs> it, it dates it and it's bad to use like brand names and writing a story, which I don't know. I was like, what? That's just life. Like, what do you mean? Like we, we use things that have brands, you know, and maybe it it is weird. Like he mentions Lancer's wine, which I am old enough and you are old enough to remember that green bottle. I do not remember that bottle. I got to say. Oh, you don't? No. I remember it. Maybe my mom, uh, my mom, you know, drank a lot of wine, but I remember it was like a, it was a gla- green glass bottle, kind of a low market. But I know exactly what he's talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. you, there is like a, you, you can do a kind of drinking game, as it were, with King stuff when he mentions, for every time he mentions a brand name. So speaking of writing, I just want to, and this confirms something you said before. Again, just a very simple paragraph where David is describing Billy. And at the beginning, before anything bad happens, he says, you know, he ran back and I watched him go, legs pumping, soles of Azori showing. I love him. It's his face and sometimes the way his eyes turn up to mine. They make me feel as if things are really okay. It's a lie, of course. Things are not okay and never have been. But my kid makes me believe the lie. Yeah. And again, it, it ca- perfectly captures the way he feels about his son. It's the way we all feel about our children. You know, yeah. Yeah, I could even talk about Billy more because Billy, as someone who's, again, the child skeptic, Billy's a complete character. Yeah. And how Which, rare is that in literature, period. But to I will have all, a child in yeah. an adult novel right, right. who isn't a, a main character, character right. but is a full character. But I will say, this is again, I think about contrasting with the movie. Billy doesn't work in the movie. Oh, no. Billy is an well, annoying little shit. In child the actors are yeah. terrible. And it's not, though, no, I don't think it's even the child. It's just like David describing him works. Seeing it actually on the screen, it's very different. And it's off-putting in a way. And so, like, it, it was, fa- again, this is why I think the novel is better. I love also that Billy is imperfect. Yeah, you know? of course. He's not right. like a, it, the, the character trait that King gives him is that he's, like, a little literal, serious kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. of course, he also makes that charming. But, like, there's a scene where he where he makes one joke. Like, right. Billy makes a little joke. And, 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 and David is so proud of it because, like, it shows growth. On yeah, him. So yeah, like, yeah. again, yeah, just well yeah. done. It, what else? What do you we, We've talked about so much. I mean, I just don't have a lot besides okay. some of the pretty writing that I wanted to mention. So the, the only other thing I would close, uh, like beyond the writing is I did like, again, this is where the novella was better than the, the film. They reference this, the Arrowhead project, Oh yeah. you know, that, that the military is working on, you know, in the book, it's cleverly referred to a couple of times, but we have no idea if it was responsible for what happens mm-hmm. in the mist. And like, that was the right way to handle that. In the movie, it is made literal in a way that it just, it it makes it leaden and it is bad. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Any more it, good writing you want to sound out? 
Well, I wanted to actually take back, I called it pretty writing, which is something I sometimes say about, there is something that's called, I, I consider pretty writing. No, but this writing. isn't pretty writing. This it's isn't... not pretty. Yeah. No, it's no. it's actually like all of these really concise things that are it's in efficient. the service of yeah. a larger theme. And yeah, yeah I'm going to have to teach this. I just <laughs> realizing now I'm going to have to teach this. Anything else? It's good. You should read the whole Skeleton Crew book if you're into it. I think it has a bunch of, like, I don't read as much of his short stories anymore, but I really love Skeleton Crew when it came out. Okay. I think it has his one, um, <laughs> uh, Quitter's Ink, which is in the Cat's Eye movie. Have you ever seen that movie? No. Probably. With Drew Barrymore. It's a, a quartet of King short stories. Huh. Okay. And um, Quitter's Ink is about, uh, spoiler alert a little bit, but it won't, it, mm-hmm. you'll still, it still works. It's about a company that helps people quit in this particular story. It's smoking. Although I think everyone understands that's not really what King's writing. About. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. By, th- by th- killing or harming your loved ones. If you, if you do that. Lives. Oh my God. Jesus. Wow. <laughs> okay. Wow. All right. They start with cutting off fingers. Ah, sorry. It is spoiler, but it's a great, it is. I mean, he's writing about alcoholism, right? Yeah. Like, because people still relapse. Yep. Like, even though you know, right, terrible things might happen to your loved ones. Addiction mm-hmm. works. Yep. On that level, addiction yes. makes you do that stupid kind of shit. Oh God! By the way, that in the film version of the mist, I actually winced because at one point when they go to the pharmacy, Ollie is excited because he finds the oxycontin. Oh God. <laughs> Because this is that was during the peak oxycontin is a pain reliever phase and like yeah, know, yeah, yeah. it dates the film more than anything else is the reason I yeah know that. yeah all right well I think that that's it Dan mm-hmm. yeah yeah all right I think that's it. Uh, so if you have not already become a patron if this hasn't thrown you for whatever <laughs> reason if you want more of this and you want it earlier in yes. your life you want exactly. to be able to listen to our dulcet tones over the weekend at your mm-hmm. leisure rather than on, on Mondays or during the week. If you become a patron, you get episodes early. You also get to join our Discord, which I mentioned up top. Discord's amazing. It's a great little community. We recently started a fantasy football league, the <laughs> nerdiest football league in America, pretty sure. I mean, I'm sure there's like an MIT league or whatever. Yeah, That is. we are called One League to Rule Them All. Nice. There is an Adorno division. <laughs> I am in it. <laughs> nice. My team's name is the Fighting Shogoloths, which is the you know, Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovecraft. Yeah. Okay. So it's a wonderful community. We do all kinds of fun stuff. And then other reasons there's someday we're gonna have merch. Whatever. Like we have monthly AUAs that you can participate right. in. And yeah. you know, again, early access to the podcast. Also, like, you know, at some point we might do a live recording you know the two of us together yes we have dared the discord we have dared the discord if they can produce like enough people that would be willing to meet us in person we will do that we can even tell this i i will tell the story completely about that blog panel that we're met in in 2004 <laughs> anything else about joining you get episodes early we do occasionally special episodes we haven't done one yeah. in a while but oh and then we're going to do a special episode once we get into 250 yes patrons we're going to do a special episode about a topic chosen by the patrons, only available to the patrons. The topic doesn't have to be sci-fi. It can be almost anything. Open we are up. yes, we are going to veto certain things. 
We're not going to talk about games. We're not going to talk about nine-hour movies about the Holocaust. Like, you've got to show I put my foot down on that one. Yep. 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 But otherwise, you know, you can make us do a rom-com. You can make us do, you know, Avatar. You can make us do whatever. So, yeah. And then, Dan, let's do our pluggables. What do you got? I, by the time this comes out, we'll have a piece in Foreign Affairs on the website. On on the website, www.foreignaffairs.com. Well, it's not, in the, it's not in the print version. It'll be online. And okay. it's about basically the ways that the rest of the world are now having to hedge or plan for a possible second Trump term. Speaking of like the mist coming. Hmm. And you have, Anna, your big TNR piece. Hopefully, right? I have this big TNR piece coming out. Cover story, Dan. Ooh. Um, it's my first cover story in a long time. Nice. Anywhere. So I'm very excited about it. I am on Instagram at Anna Marie Cox. You and I are both on... Blue Sky. Blue Sky. I haven't mm-hmm. been there a while, but you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're pretty active. I'm reasonably active. Yes, I like it. And uh, I have a substack. Yeah, I have a substack. It's called Dresner's World. You know. Doing pretty well, actually. I keep knocking on wood about that because Otta keeps expecting it to fail, but I understand why. Not yours. I want to be I very understand. clear. Yes. Not the larger, the larger enterprise. Yeah. But the larger project of journalists trying to support themselves with newsletters. And, and I am not trying to support you know. myself, which is, I think, why it is working yes. reasonably well. So right. that's, yes. And you speaking wanna... of journalists trying to support themselves. Yes. Yes. Anna. My writing workshop is starting in uh, October. Mm-hmm. It is a memoir writing workshop, 10 weeks, small class, oh, wow. uh, once a week for a couple hours. With I, I have office hours available for people for one-on-one stuff. Hmm. If you go to the website. The website is www.annamariecox.com, pronounced differently from her actual name, Anna Marie Cox. For no particular reason. It's just yeah. the rules. Yeah. There are blurbs from former students and information oh. about how to sign up. And I really love doing it 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 is it's brought a lot of joy to my life and i think it's done some good in the world so if you're interested folks you should sign up you should sign up and then rebecca roanhorse musicals Mm -hmm. other stuff we've got other stuff in the hopper we might be doing a lot of retrospectives considering this strike that's happening yes exactly (laughs) Yeah. yeah and until then keep this channel open for more.